All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, get things started with the class. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing upon this day. Lord, we are so thankful for the rain yesterday. Uh, we are also thankful for the sunshine and for the, uh, the beautiful uh, fall that it's been so far. And so, Lord, we just uh, we give you the praise for it. Uh, Father, uh, as we meet here today uh, to worship you and learn about you and, and uh, in, the, in the case of today, to also renew some, some old friendships. Uh, it's just a wonderful time, and we just pray that you would be glorified in everything that we do and that you would guide us and direct us as we uh, look into your word. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, over the last few weeks here, we have been uh, you know, talking about recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible, and uh, we've kind of started out with talking about spiritual beings. Uh, when the Bible talks about the sons of God, who exactly are they? Um, we, our first class, actually, uh, we kind of honed in on the, some of the language of the Bible, how it talks about gardens and mountains, and oftentimes refers to those places as the places that God lives. Uh, and, and that's how the Hebrews viewed it. Uh, it's also how the people around them, it was a common viewpoint in the world that uh, now, obviously, they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods, but they believed their gods lived in gardens and mountains, and, and the Jews believed that, that the God lived in, in gardens and mountains. And so we looked at some of the language of that and then uh, kind of tied that into um, the sons of God. And then last week, we looked at angels. Today, we are going to uh, kind of do our last week on spiritual beings in the Bible, and we're going to talk about Satan and the demons, okay? Um, first thing I want to do is just establish uh, the existence of Satan in the Bible. And, and any of you who, you know, if, if you need the notes, if you don't have them, there's notes. Uh, I know Rodney's got them back there, and he can give you the, the notes, and hopefully they'll help you out because I do realize that this class is kind of a rapid-fire uh, class. There's a lot of information to, to try to cover. So, uh, the, as far as their existence in the Bible, uh, the existence of Satan is taught in at least seven Old Testament books and by all of the New Testament writers. Not every particular book, but every writer in the New Testament teaches the existence of Satan. Uh, and, and so his existence was well testified in Scripture. Jesus taught the existence of Satan. I, I, I have a couple passages there for you. I want to look up uh, one of those this morning. I want to look up Luke 10, verses uh, 18 through 20. And, and this is, is Jesus speaking about Satan. And he, he says, yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. Uh, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Um, one, God, you know, Christ establishes the, the existence of Satan. In fact, he says that he saw Satan fall. He witnessed the fall of Satan, uh, which makes sense, obviously, since he is the Son of God. Uh, and so he was there for the fall of Satan when Satan was cast down. Uh, and so Jesus witnessed it. Um, you know, the, 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 the apostles, uh, you know, they, they are overwhelmed by the fact that, that Christ has sent them out and, and, you know, they can cast out demons and the demons, you know, they have power over the demons. And, and, and that's what they come back to Jesus and, and they said, Lord, even the demons obey us when, when we use your name. And Jesus basically says, well, of course. I, I, I witnessed it. I, I, I watched him be thrown out of heaven. Uh, and, and then he, you know, he goes on to say some interesting things. He, he, he says, uh, look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions. Now, many people through the years have taken that to, you know, and there's even kind of like Christian-based cults that believe you can, like, they, they pick up snakes and handle snakes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, saying, well, see, the Bible says we have power over them. The reality is that's probably not what it's talking about here. You notice the whole context for this is all Satan and the demons. 
And snakes and scorpions, things like that are often used as kind of symbolic of demons in the Bible. Think back to, to the garden again. You notice how all these things start to tie together after a while? You know, Satan in the form of a serpent in the garden. And so what Jesus is saying to them is, yes, I've given you authority over the demons. You know, and they can't hurt you. You know, now it, it does. It's not a flippant thing. Uh, you know, we we find out later on in in, in the Bible that, you know, you, you can't be flippant with Satan and the demons. Like you can't. But I, I hear this sometimes. Like you'll be flipping through the TV and you'll some see some preacher. Well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to punch Satan in the face and all that kind of not crazy stuff. And it is crazy stuff. We have no power on our own. You notice what they said. The demons. We have authority over the demons when we use your name. And, and that's the whole thing. It's all about the power of Christ. It's not about any particular ability that we have, okay? And so people go a little crazy with this. But the, the point that is important to understand here is, one, that Satan exists, that demons exist, and Jesus is, is backing that up here. He's teaching that. And also that his people don't have to be afraid of them, okay, because of his power, because of what he has done. And we will get back to that here uh, in, a, in a little bit. So it's very well established that, that Satan exists in, in the Bible. Um, now let me just give you some of the names and the titles that, that are given to him. Satan means adversary or resistor, okay? It, it can mean either one. It, it's one who is an adversary or one who resists, all right? And either, either one fits perfectly fine for for what he does. Uh, and, th- and this is probably the most used, the first two I'm going to give are the, the two most used names for him in Scripture, okay, Satan or the devil. Uh, and, and, they, they, and I talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but when you see Satan, especially in the Old Testament, it is almost always the Satan. It's almost really more like a title than it is a name. Uh, you know, he is being called the adversary. He is the adversary. Now, you know, as it's, it's common sometimes when someone kind of has an identification like that, we not only, you know, use it as a title, but it, it tends to become in time a, a name. Like, like, we actually call him now Satan. We call him adversary. Uh, but most of the time, it's actually kind of, the Bible is stating he is the adversary, Okay. Second one you see here is the devil. <coughs> devil means accuser or slanderer. And again, it's, it's a very fitting name. The Bible tells us that, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, that he is the one who ac- accuses God's people. He, he comes before God and, and, and accuses us of, of sin. And, and the reality is we sin enough that he doesn't even have to lie about that probably most of the time. Uh, the great thing is, the Bible says that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. So again, it's the power of Christ that defeats Satan. It, it, it's not anything on our own, but it's the power of Jesus. And what he has done, his, his shedding of his blood on the cross, his resurrection, uh, is the answer for our sin. Uh, but Satan is the accuser. He is the slanderer. Um, and he is a liar, by the way. I'm not saying that he doesn't lie. I'm just saying we sin enough that he doesn't always have to lie. Um, but he does lie. That is one of the things that, that he is known mostly for. Now, how many of you have ever heard this phrase, that, that his name when he was an angel was Lucifer? means son of the morning. It's kind of an unfortunate phrase. It, it, it is like a... Um, kind of a modern translation of that, of that phrase, son of the morning, but that is not necessarily his name. Uh, and, and a lot of like Hebrew scholars will, will stress that, that that's really an unfortunate interpretation that was kind of made, you know, by the King James, and it's, it doesn't, it, it's not really accurate. Uh, you know, it's more of a description of who he was, uh, you know, that, that he was the son of the morning, you know, he, his brightness, the idea of his, his brightness or his shininess, which we've talked about already, uh, that, that, you know, these uh, uh, spiritual beings tend to take on a very kind of shiny nature, 
We'll talk more about that later on, so I'm not going to kind of go into that too deeply here today. So it's probably not particularly accurate that his, you know, angelic name was Lucifer. Um, you know, it kind of we kind of get away from from what is meant in that passage, and and, and Morning Star, or Son of the Morning, uh, is more accurate to to what he was called, um, and a description of him. And, and we'll read that passage here uh, here in a little bit. Fourth name that is common for him is Beelzebub, Baalzebul. Uh, there, there's actually a, three or four variants of the same name. Uh, it's common. Beelzebub is common. Let me uh, let's let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, <coughs> verse 24. Matthew 12:24. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. This is talking about Jesus. And they, they couldn't answer why he could cast out demons, you know, so well. In particular, they couldn't understand how he could cast out a demon of somebody who could not speak, who couldn't use their vocal cords. Um, it, it was, most ancient cultures had a, people who were exorcists. The Jews did. Uh, but but the way that it was it would usually work is they would somehow you know speak to the demon try to find out the demon's name and use the name to cast the demon out. But if someone couldn't speak, if 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 they were they were mute, there was no way to do that, and they couldn't they didn't know how to handle that. Well, Jesus just cast the demon out. There was nothing to it for him, and so right away when you see that happen, and there's several episodes in Scripture where you see that happen. And immediately people's reaction is they go running off to the Pharisees and they say, hey, doesn't this have to be the Messiah? Because evidently in Jewish belief in, in that period between the Testaments, the Second Temple period, one of the things they believed the Messiah would be able to do would be to cast out demons that nobody else could cast out. So right away they'd go running off to the Pharisees and the Pharisees would say, oh, no, 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 there's got to be another explanation they needed another explanation because either that or they had to admit Jesus was the Messiah. And so their other explanation was, well, he's a demon himself. He, he casts out demons by the power of, of Satan. That's the accusation that they were making against Jesus. It, it, that is actually the entire backdrop for the whole, uh, like the unpardonable sin. People always are worried about you know, whether they've committed the unpardonable sin. You can't commit the unpardonable sin. And in, in our context, it's a, it's a Jewish context. The only way you can really take it over into our context would be dying without accepting Christ as your Savior. That, that, that is really the only unpardonable sin that we can commit. They, they were denying their Messiah, uh, but even they could get saved. But the nation as a whole denied their Messiah and, and, and sinned because of that. And that's the whole context, actually, for the unpardonable sin. So they were accusing Jesus of being essentially a demon himself. And it says here, when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. And that term there, Satan, is in Greek, Beelzebul. Okay? It, it is, is not Satanus, it is Beelzebul. And it's commonly used, and some of you may even have that in your translation. Okay? Now, Beelzebul, everybody pretty much agrees that in some way or another, and like I said, there's three or four ways that, that it's actually written or pronounced. In all those ways, it is equating Satan with Baal. Now, you guys have all heard of Baal. Baal was one of the, the banes of the existence of, of Israel. The, they were virtually surrounded by Baal worshipers. Uh, and... It was a difficult fight throughout Israel's history to kind of keep the people from worshiping Baal. We discussed that like the whole way back into the first week or two. The reason it was such a problem is because the language of like the people of, of Ugarit, which was just to the north of Israel, and a lot of the people around Israel, the languages are so close. And there's so many similarities in some ways between uh, you know, like the Baal worshipers and, and the Jews, that they, you know, it was easy to conflate one with the other. And, and, and because of that, they, they fell into Baal worship. 
And so you see a constant kind of battle going on throughout the Old Testament and into the New against Baal. And so devout Jewish believers began to, to, you know, basically take that name of Baal and associate that with Satan. Okay, and so that's one of the names that Satan has been given. And the strict meaning of it is the Lord of the Flies. Okay, it's the Lord of the Flies. Uh, and, and it's meant to be derogatory, by the way. The Jews meant it to be, you know, to make fun of Baal. You know, and, and, and meant, it was meant to be negative. Uh, and so Satan, they, 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 they used that name for, uh, for Satan. Another name that you see is Belial. This does not come up very often. Uh, you can see the reference there. We won't take time to look at that today, but 2 Corinthians 6, 15 uh, is the word Belial. Uh, and it basically means worthless. You know, something or someone that is worthless. All right? Uh, worthlessness. And so uh, Satan is, is, is called Belial. So those are the, the most common names that are used. Now, there's also titles that are given to Satan, and there's representations that are given about Satan. Some of the titles, and I've just listed them there, I haven't you know, put down uh, references because we just wouldn't have time this morning to look all these up, but he's called the evil one, the tempter, the prince of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, uh, and the accuser of the brethren. And there's more, but that, that's the main ones that you see, that he is kind of given those titles uh, in, in the Bible. He also uh, is, is certain other creatures or certain other uh, ways of speaking are used to represent him. Um, he is called a serpent. It's interesting that we see this in the book of Genesis and we see this in the book of Revelation. Beginning to end, we see him referred to as a serpent. And I told you guys back when we studied Revelation for the last two years, there is so much Edenic language in Revelation, taking you back to Eden, because the plan that God always had to dwell with his people, live with his people, you know, in, in perfection, that, that plan, God never gave up on that plan when man failed, you know, both angelic beings and man fail. God's family failed him, but God never gave up on them. And his plan ultimately is to go back to that picture of Eden, and that's what we see at the end of the book of Revelation. You know, every, every, I mean, every scholar I encountered as I was studying Revelation pointed to those last several chapters as noticed how much like Eden this is. You know, the Edenic language was everywhere. And it, it just shows that God's ultimate plan is to rebuild that kingdom. That's the entire purpose for the nation of Israel. When God abandoned the peoples, when you know, people just kept abandoning him, so God said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. I'll divvy you up amongst the, the sons of God and you can go worship whatever you want, but I'm gonna make a people of my own. Israel will be my portion, and I will make them on my own. And, and like immediately after that, then you start to see the calling of Abraham and God be, you know, making a people. Interestingly enough, he called them right out of the midst of Mesopotamia, which was right where the Tower of Babel took place. Right out of the heart of man's rebellion against God, he took Abraham and he made a new people out of him. And the whole purpose, what did he tell Abraham? I will make you a blessing to all the peoples of the world. God's plan was, okay, if the world keeps you know, rebelling against me, I'm gonna make a special people of my own and I'm gonna use them to bring the Messiah and the Messiah will bring them back to me. Okay, so that's always been the plan of God. And so, you know, we, we, we see that in, 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 in the serpent. At beginning and end, Satan is known as the serpent. Now, there's much debate, you know, and, and, and I don't want to get too far off on this, um, but in Genesis, did Satan possess a serpent? Did he become a serpent? You know, uh, you know or was he, you know, was he some sort of a 
creature of his own that is called the serpent. And when the Bible says the serpent had more guile than all the other creatures, that it may not be speaking about, you know, at one point the snake was smarter than anything else. Probably not. More than likely, it's, it's the, the, the creature that Satan became, you know, or showed himself to be in, in the garden. But, but again, that's, that's, we don't have time to, to go too deeply into that. The book of Revelation also calls him a dragon. Uh, you know, the great red dragon, uh, he is called in the book of Revelation. And, and actually in the same passage, chapter 12, where he is called a serpent. And, and there may even be some connection there, by the way, uh, you know, to dragons and, and, and serpents. Um, and then he's also called an angel of light. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways that he, one of his representations, uh, because, and this goes back to him, his you know, initial kind of state as, as the, the bright morning star, uh, the shininess, if you will. Uh, so he, he represents himself as an angel of light. But that is obviously very deceiving because uh, as beautiful as he may be on the outside, he is as dark as, as dark gets on the inside. Uh, and, and so it's just a way that he represents himself and the way the Bible speaks of him. Now, his personhood is very clearly taught in Scripture. And, and again, we mentioned the other week that generally the, the elements that we speak of in personhood is intellect, emotion, and will. Uh, and the Bible clear, is very clear that he has all of those things. He is very intelligent. Uh, he is emotional. We see in Revelation 12 that he becomes very angry when he is cast out of heaven uh, and, and is, is just filled with rage uh, and starts taking it out on, on God's people. Um, you know, and he obviously has a will. He chose to rebel against God. Uh, he is seen as a morally responsible creature, in the Bible, he is held responsible for the things that he has done, for the decisions that he has made, and for those things he will be judged. And we'll talk about that judgment here uh, in a little bit. Now, here's where things get really interesting, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about Satan today, and that is speaking of his origin, his origin, his sin, and his ultimate punishment. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28. There are two passages in particular, Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19, and then uh, Isaiah chapter 14 uh, verses 4 through 20, that we'll probably only look at 4 through 16 today. <coughs> and most scholars, and I say most, I, I don't say all, and I don't even say all conservative scholars, but most scholars view these two passages uh, as speaking about Satan and talking about his origins, okay? Um, I mean, literally, we could spend a week on each one of these. We just don't have time to do that today. So I'll talk about some of the, some of the interpretive issues as we go um, but we, we won't go super into depth on them. But uh, I want to begin by reading Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Now, let me give you a little background. At the beginning of this, at the beginning of chapter 8, um, Ezekiel is, is basically told to write a message against uh, the king of Tyre, or the prince of Tyre. Uh, and, and, and Tyre was like a small... Uh, you know, kind of, um, kind of an island nation in the Mediterranean, very rich because of their shipping uh, and things like that, uh, but, but really not of much consequence militarily, but uh, evidently the king of Tyre had a very haughty opinion of himself and saw himself as basically a god and, and wanted to be worshipped as a god. And so, so you know, Yahweh, uh, you know, sends this message against him and against his pride. If you, if, if you notice in, in uh, verse 2, it says, In your great pride you claim I am a God. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. But you are only a man and not a God, though you boast that you are a God. So you see clearly that the king of, you know, Prince of Tyre, King of Tyre, had a very inflated opinion of himself. Now, almost all scholars believe that the beginning of this is speaking about the human being, this 
this Prince of Tyre. Where things get interesting and where the debate starts is basically around uh, uh, verse 11. Verse 10 kind of ends with, you will die like an outcast at the hands of strangers. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. That seems to be the end of a judgment, basically. But then in verse 11, he says this again. Then this further message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre, a, a, a dirge. Uh, you know, a, a, essentially a, a, a funeral song, a song about someone's uh, either their past death or, or an impending death. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. And then look what he begins to say. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, right away you start to kind of, well, wait a minute. Who's this talking about? You know, is this still talking about the prince of Tyre? He wasn't in Eden. You know, uh, he goes on to say, your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red uh, carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue-green beryl, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, uh, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day that you were created. I adorned and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. Um, And and some of you may have cherub there as as the the guardian cherub. Basically, same same thing. Uh, The phrase there is very difficult. Verse 14 is one of the most difficult phrases in the entire Bible. Uh, in some translations, including the Septuagint, several of the words are not even there. And so it is, it is, there's no agreement on basically how to translate that, that phrase. Uh, you know, as a mighty angelic guardian, you had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day that you were created unto the day evil was found in you. Um, let's continue on. Uh, your rich commerce led, uh, led you to violence and you sinned, so I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from the place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom has corrupted by, uh, was corrupted by the, your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defile your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire out from within you and it consumed you and reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. Uh, All who knew you were appalled at your fate. Uh, You have come to a terrible end and you exist no more. All right. It's three ways through the years that people have traditionally interpreted this. The people that insist that this whole thing is still speaking about the Prince of Tyre basically say that, that verses, 19, or verses 11 through 19 should just be taken you know, as, as kind of metaphor. Uh, you know, that, that, that the, the, there's no real reality here. He's basically setting up how great the fall will be of the Prince of Tyre. And remember, even though the language at the very end seems to suggest it's already over, remember he, at the very beginning, he said, write this, this dirge for him and give it to him. You know, and so it, it, uh, you get a little mixed messaging. Is this happened yet and has it, you know, or has it not? And, and, you know, most scholars believe part of this has happened already in part, especially the last two verses, remain to be seen in the future. Um, so people a lot of times take it as purely symbolic. Uh, it's, it's just symbolic of a great fall. That is kind of the traditional um, kind of mainline denomination kind of way of taking it for many years. It's largely passing off the scene in, in more recent years, uh, and especially amongst conservatives, uh, people who you know, believe in biblical inerrancy, you don't see this view as often as what you once did. The, the, probably the most common view is that this is speaking about Adam. Yeah, because how do you reconcile Prince of Tyre being in, in, you know, in, in the garden and on the mountain of God? Well, you, you don't. It has to all be completely symbolic. So other people view it and they say, well, I, Adam was in the garden. 
And so this is the casting out of Adam, and, and a cherub cast him out. And, and, and they would argue that instead of saying you were a cherub, that you know, basically you were with a cherub, which is one of the possible ways it's translated. Like I said, nobody can agree on how that verse is translated. So that's how they take it. You were with a cherub, uh, with a, you know, one of the guardian, guardians of God, and God, he was guarding the, the, the garden, and you sinned, and so he cast you out. So that's probably the most traditional way to take this passage. Probably more scholars take that than, and I know that's surprising for a lot of conservative Christians who you've been taught their whole life this is talking about Satan. But that is probably the most popular position, actually. There are some significant problems with that position, though. Part of it is the sin that, that, that if this is Adam, you know, look at what he's basically accused of. Violence and pride. And you find none of that in the story of Adam's fall in Genesis 3. And, and, and so, you know, where does this idea come from? That, that this is what Adam has, has, has done. Um, let, me, let me read a, a couple notes to you. Um, I talked about uh, this one scholar back a few weeks ago, Michael Heiser. Let me read a few notes uh, from Dr. Heiser. Michael Heiser um, was a renowned Old Testament scholar, Hebrew scholar, um, had like a, I, I, I can't remember, it's like a doctorate in Egyptology and Semitic languages and like two master's degrees in like Hebrew Bible and ancient studies and a very renowned scholar. He was the scholar in residence at Logos Bible Software at one point. Um, it says here, many scholars argue that the Edenic figure in view is Adam. This view depends on rejecting the traditional Hebrew text of the passage. If one prefers the Septuagint here, then God is speaking to an individual who is with the anointed cherub, as opposed to speaking directly to the anointed cherub. The more coherent alternative is that the cherub is the serpent from Genesis. More pointedly, a divine being who has forgotten his place in the pecking order. Let me go on to read, uh, make sure I got the right uh, reference here. Let me go on to read uh, another note of his on, on this. He says, um, was Adam with, uh, with an anointed cherub where do we read in Genesis 3 that Adam was filled with violence or that his sin was propelled by the fact that he was egotistically enamored with his own beauty and splendor? When was Adam cast to the ground to be exposed before kings? If you look at verse 17, it says your heart was filled with pride and because of your beauty, your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground. Well, that word ground there is the word aretz. It's the Hebrew word aretz, and it means one of two things. It is either taken as ground, dirt, or the underworld. Neither one of those fit Adam. In fact, Adam was made from dirt, the Bible says. He was made from the ground. He was not cast to the ground. He was already there. So as a judgment, it would be worthless. It's like Oh, you live on the ground, I'm going to cast you to the ground. What could be taken, I'm going to cast you to the underworld. But when Adam was, you know, kicked out of the garden, the Bible doesn't tell us he was cast into the underworld. In fact, it says he kept on living and had children and populated the earth. <coughs> so it, there's some huge problems with this being Adam. Again, you have to take certain parts of the language and, and take the parts you want to be literal and make them literal, and then take the parts you don't want to be literal and kind of make them not literal. You know, and, and, and so it, it kind of runs into some interpretive problems. He goes on to say that uh, since we know that we are not dealing with a mere animal in Genesis 3, and pretty much all scholars agree with that, that, that the serpent in Genesis 3 was not just a serpent. At the very least, it was a serpent possessed by Satan. Most likely, it was not a literal physical serpent at all. It was Satan, you know, in a form, in a, a serpent-like form. 
Uh, and, you know, we, we, we know that we're not dealing, as he says here, with a mere animal in Genesis 3, but rather a, design, a divine being that is cast as creaturely, the description that this figure in the garden was an anointed uh, 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 cher- guardian cherub makes sense. A cherub was a divine throne guardian in the ancient, in the ancient Near Eastern worldview. And by the way, he's talking here of how the Jews viewed cherubs and even all the people around them. They all had the idea of cherubs. All the people in the ancient Near East basically had an understanding of what cherubs were. Okay? Ancient Near Eastern art and engravings have many examples of such throne guardians as animals, including serpents. There's little coherence to the view that the the guardian cherub in Ezekiel 28 as the human Adam. Basically, he's saying it just makes no sense for this to be talking about Adam. The, 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 The imagery that it's using is clearly a divine being an angelic being, not, not the human Adam here. It says, let us summarize where this leaves us. Ezekiel 28, brow, brow beats the prince of Tyre using an ancient tale of divine arrogance in Eden, where a member of Yahweh's council thought himself on par with the Most High. This divine throne guardian was expelled from Eden to the ground or the underworld. And that is the common view amongst most conservatives that, you know, this is speaking about Satan here in Ezekiel 28. And this is the fall of Satan. Now, like I said, it's not the view of everyone. I don't want to paint a false picture for you. There is great debate over this passage. But this is the, the, the view of, of, of probably most conservatives today that when, you know, when God is, is sending this message to the king of Tyre, he essentially, as, as Dr. Heiser just said, he uses a much older story, the story of the fall of Satan, in order to implicate the, the, the sin of the prince of Tyre. His, his sin was pride, and he saw himself as a god, wanted to raise himself up above, above God, and that was Satan's sin too. And so God you know, tells the story of the fall of Satan to basically... Um, you know, kind of foreshadow the fall of the human prince of Tyre, okay? And so that these, this passage here is speaking about Satan's fall. Now, what do we learn here, okay, if this is speaking about Satan? Well, notice that he's in Eden, the garden of God. We talked about that back, you know, weeks ago, that we tend to see Eden as the place that God built for man to live. Well, that's true, but that's only one part of the truth. Eden was also the place God came and and dwelt on this earth, and it's also the place, evidently, that his heavenly counsel met on this earth. And we're told here in the passage that Satan was in Eden. You know, you you were in Eden, and this is, by the way, before the fall. He's, He's not talking about him falling yet. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God, your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. And he goes on and, and, and lists all these different stones. The quality of every one of those stones is brightness or shininess, sparkliness. What do we see? And we talked about this last week when we talked about angels. Every time we see the appearance of an angel, not necessarily every time, but most times I'll say, how's it described? Bright, shiny strikes people with awe, they, they get in fear and they fall down. Well, that's how Satan is described here too. Uh, a, a beautiful, bright, shiny. Some believe that, that he wore essentially a robe or a coat made, you know, a, a, a jeweled by all these precious stones. Others believe that that was his actual appearance before the fall. I don't know. I don't have any opinion on that one way or another. Either one works fine for me. I'm not going to get in a fight with anybody over either one of them. Either one's okay. But he was shiny. You know, he, he was bright. He, he was beautiful. He said, they were given to you on the day that you were created. I had ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic cherub. You know, he, he, he had a high position. He was, you know, 
high up in God's rank, if you will. And we need to speak very carefully about that because we don't know exactly what that all is. We, we kind of talk as if we under, have complete understanding of all these things, but we don't. But somehow in God's hierarchy in heaven, Satan was very high. You know, um, you had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Again, the idea of God being on a holy mountain. A mountain we've seen a mountain and a garden now. It means he was in God's presence. And if he was a cherub, again, cherubs were seen by the Jews and by basically everybody in the world around them as guardian you know, beings. They guarded like the throne of, of a king or of God, of someone important. That's what cherubs did. So essentially, he, he was at God's throne. He doesn't seem like he was the only one there. He was one of the, the angels that were around the throne of God. It said he walked among the stones of fire. And, and again, how people translate stones of fire is, you know, you could write a book on all the different possible ways that people take that. But one way that people take it is that that was essentially the counsel of God. They were, he was one of them, okay, and he walked amongst them. That's the, the point. He, they, they, were, they were around God's throne. He had his place amongst them. He was beautiful. He was, he was you know, perfect in, in what he was, you know, and, and, and th- this is who Satan was at one time. It says, you were blameless in all you do, did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Closest we ever get in Scripture to, to where evil came from is in that verse. That's the beginning of it all right there. Doesn't tell us anything about how it happened. We get a little bit more about like its nature as we continue to read. He says, your rich commerce led you to violence and you sin. Now, commerce is, is, you know, can be seen as either you're out buying and selling things or you're out talking to people and interjecting with people. And that seems to be the way most scholars take this, is in, you know, in his talking and interjecting with all the other angelic beings, he saw himself as, hey, I'm better than all these guys. Look at me. You know, I'm hot stuff. And, and, and you know, I should be above them all. So, you know, pride, which is what the Bible continually paints as his greatest sin. He says, so I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place amongst the stones of fire. Again, notice the stones of fire is, is, is a place where he had a place in them. So it seems more likely it's talking about, you know, at least to me, it seems more like he's talking about a group of, of beings than just a, a, you know, a bunch of stones on the ground. He lost his position. He lost his place. Notice verse 17, your heart was filled with pride because of your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground, to the arets, or to the underworld, and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. And, and that's where we're going to stop for right now because it's most likely verses 18 and 19 are awaiting the further fulfillment that when he is ultimately judged one day. Uh, he will be uh, cast into the lake of fire. But that's basically part of what seems to be part of, of what the Bible teaches on the fall of Satan. Now, there's another passage. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 4. I want to start by reading verse 4. He says, You will taunt the king of Babylon. You will say this, the mighty man has been destroyed. Yes, your insolence is ended. A taunt in Hebrew is mashal. Uh, and essentially, it, it, it means a comparative parable. Uh, a, a, a mashal is, is like when you use one thing to, as a, you know, you're, you're saying a parable, a teaching, uh, you know, and you use one thing to compare to another. You guys get the idea? You know, so you're going to, Bring up one thing to make a comparison to something else. So he's going to, uh, you know, launch this mashal, this taunt against the, the king of Babylon. But it's, it's in the form of a comparison with somebody. So who is the comparison with? Let's continue on to read. It says, the mighty man has been destroyed. Yes, your, your insolence um, 
you know, has, has been, uh, has ended. Uh, let me read verses, um, let me find my note here how I want it. Let me read verses uh, 5 through 8. For the Lord has crushed your wicked power and broken your evil rule. You stuck, struck the, the people with endless blows of rage and held the nations in, in your angry grip with unrelenting tyranny. But finally the earth is at rest and quiet. Now it can sing again. I love this verse, by the way. This is really cool. Uh, <laughs> the imagery here. Even the trees of the forest, the cypress trees and the cedars of Lebanon sing out this joyous song. Since you have been cut down, no one will now come to cut us down. Don't you just love that? It's like, you know, the trees are, are, are actually now singing because of what has happened here because that, that means that, you know, since he's been cut down, no one will come and cut them down. Up until this point, you could say, well, you know, this is just a, you know, this is against a human king. You know, it, it would fit. You know, it would fit with, with, with a human king. But then we come to verse 9, and things don't fit so well with a human king. Let's read verses 9 through 11. In the place of the dead, this is Sheol, there is excitement over your arrival. The spirits of world leaders and mighty kings, a long dead, stand up to see you. With one voice, they all cry out. Now you are as weak as we are. Uh, your might and power were buried with you. The sound of the harp in your palace has ceased. Now maggots are your sheet and worms your blanket. Gotta love that imagery, especially right before Halloween, you know? Already the language starts to be kind of going in a different direction here. You know, why in the world are, are like the, the, the spirits in the underworld like standing up to, oh man, he was cast down. He's being thrown here amongst us. You know, what, what, what in the world is, 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 you know, why would that happen? Verses 12 through 16. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. And that's where the, the word, uh, you know, was translated as Lucifer from that. But you tend to lose the, 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 the impact that that is what it is saying about him. He was the shining star. He was the son of the morning. Again, that idea of glowing, of, of shining, that's in all these passages. How mighty your fall is. You have been thrown down to the earth. Again, we have that term, the erets. Doesn't make sense for a human who's already on the earth, unless you take it purely symbolically. But he says you've been cast down to the erets, to the earth, or like I said, it can mean the underworld. That seems most likely considering what has just been said about him. So you've been cast down. You who destroyed the, 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 uh, destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. There we talk about angels as stars or angelic beings seen as stars. I will, people take this one of two ways. Either he is saying, I will take control of the heavens from God, or I will be above God's heavenly host. And either one is actually perfectly fine. Either one is a, is, is a fine translation. Uh, you know, it can work either way. I look at it this way. If he does one, he has the other. So essentially, they're one and the same thing, you know. This is what he wants to do. Uh, you know, he says, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods. There's our word Elohim again. I Notice God's with a small g. You see the difference in verse 13? I will set my throne above God's stars, God's with a big G. And then he goes on to say, I will preside over the mountains of the Elohim, the sons of God, essentially, far away in the north. And, and that, by the way, is that same phrase we talked about the first week, the heights of Zaphon. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Uh, instead, and that's, again, that El Elyon, I will be like God the Most High. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? And that's, we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. 
So again, we see, um, you know, the fall of Satan. Heiser, and I, I really don't have the time to get into this too much here today, but Heiser makes a, an important point in dealing with this. He says that, that most scholars do not take this to be Adam. It's interesting, in, in the Ezekiel passage, they, they take it to be Adam, but in the Isaiah passage, they do not. But yet, most scholars agree that there are connections between these two passages. They seem to clearly be talking about the same thing at certain places. So it's, it's it, and he makes the argument that, that you know, it, it's basically a, an incoherent methodology to, if you see them as connected, but yet use different translation technique in the one than in the other, okay? That, that it's just not, it, it just doesn't, it lacks coherence. So he takes the position that they are both speaking about the fall of this angelic creature who was once at, you know, in, in the very mountain of God, at the throne of God, had this position of great authority. But this passage gives us even a little bit more. It says he looked at the other beings around him and he looked at God and he said, I'm going to raise my throne above them. So not only was he filled with pride, filled with arrogance, filled with violence. One of the, the terms can be translated as violent in, in uh, Ezekiel, and some probably had that translation. He was also, his pride was so great that he saw himself as being above God and all of God's creation. And that was his ultimate goal. And God said because of that, I will cast you down, I will throw you out of heaven, and ultimately I will destroy you. So that is essentially who Satan is, how he came into being, um, what his fall is. Now his ultimate end, Revelation 20.10 says his ultimate end is the lake of fire. He will be cast into the lake of fire. What he does, the consistent picture, picture throughout Scripture, is he opposes God and his plans. He opposes uh, and accuses God's people. He is a liar, he is a murderer, and he is the father of lies. Father of lies not only because he tempts others to lie, but because essentially he told the first one to himself. First lie that ever existed was when he told himself he was greater than God and all the other Sons of God. So that is who he is. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, real quickly, let's look at demons. Now, the origin of demons, and again, we are so often taught that, that you know, demons are fallen angels, and I agree with that, by the way. That is the position I take. But you need to understand, that's not the only position that is out there in the Christian world. In fact, it is not really the position that, that the Jews had, you know, predominantly. Uh, and, and I'll talk about these other uh, positions here uh, in, in a moment. Let me read something from uh, the Ryrie Study Bible. Charles Ryrie, uh, Christian theologian, wrote this. And he, he just outlay, outlies uh, like the different views here. He says, one view is that they are souls of departed evil people. So when really bad people die, they become demons. That is not a Christian view. That is an ancient, uh, like heathen view, mostly among the Greeks. That's where, you know, you, you have to understand almost all ancient peoples had, believed in demons. They, they knew that they were real. But they had different ideas of where they came from. And, they, and, and the ancient Greek view was that, well, hey, that person was really bad when he was alive, so I'll bet when he died, he became a demon. That, that was their logic, okay? That is not biblical. There's no biblical backing for that at all. Another view that's been espoused by some Christians is that they are the disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race. Now, what's that mean? means that they believe that before Adam was created, there was another race of human beings. This is mostly people who believe in what is called the gap theory. 
that, you know, boy, I don't, I don't even want to take the time to try to explain all this today. Basically, I believe there's, there's a gap of, of time in between, like, part of Genesis 1, uh, and in that gap of time, there was another group of people that were created and died, and, you know, and, and that these come from, demons are their spirits. Problem with that is, is there's no real biblical backing for that. None. It, you know, never says it anywhere. There's no biblical backing for it. So we can dismiss that one. And by the way, the gap theory is, ver- at one time it was very popular. Even amongst conservatives, it has been virtually like eliminated. There's almost no one who holds the gap theory anymore. Because linguistically it just doesn't work. Okay? The other two, so the bait basically comes down to the other two. The, the other two is that these are the offspring of angels and the antediluvian women. Remember, we talked about that the other, the other week, that when angels or the sons of God, whichever one you prefer, basically mated with human women and they had offspring and they became like the giants and the mighty men of renown of old. And, and you know, the, the idea is, is when they died, their spirits became the demons, okay? Now that seems far out to us, and I don't particularly buy it, but I will tell you that was probably the predominant view amongst ancient Jews, that that's what demons were. So it's a view that can't just be kind of, you just can't just, oh, I don't like it, so I'm going to chuck it. You know, that, that was, and you find that in Second Temple writings of the Jews. So there are some Hebrew scholars that hold to that view. By the way, I think Dr. Heiser held to that view. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't necessarily read everything he's written on that, but I'm pretty sure he held to that view. Now, what I've read of his arguments, I don't necessarily agree with. I agree with the traditional view that we've probably all been taught is that these were fallen angels. They are referred to at times as angels, as evil angels, it seems to make the most sense that they were fallen angels. Oftentimes, people will use the, the passage in Revelation chapter 12 where it says Satan drew a third of the stars of, of, of heaven to the ground, um, and so they'll use that as the number of demons. It was a third of all the angels. It's probably correct, but it's a little shaky on biblical grounds because there's nothing in the passage that you know, says that that is angels that he threw to the ground. Some people look at that and they say, well, we have stars falling to the ground all throughout the book of Revelation. Why is it not just that? And that's a possibility. So we can't be entirely sure that Satan took a third of the angels with him. You know, but that's a, that's a possibility. Uh, and like I said, I, I, I agree that's what I tend to still believe that that is, that is where... Um, demons come from, that they are fallen angels, probably fell along with Satan when he fell, all right? Their existence in the Bible is taught in all New Testament books except the book of Hebrews. Every single New Testament book teaches the existence of demons except Hebrews, and Hebrews teaches the existence of Satan. So every New Testament book teaches the existence of either Satan or the demons, Jesus taught their existence continually throughout his his earthly ministry. The Old Testament, you do not necessarily see the specific word demon. Remember, like I said, they had a completely different view of where they came from. They didn't necessarily see them as fallen angels. They do have numerous words that are used for basically demonic creatures. One is the sons of God. You know, um, and, and so, and some of the words, I, I didn't get into what they were because it's all kind of things like goats and, and, you know, different kind of animals and stuff like that. And so it can get a little iffy as to whether they're talking about demons or if they're just talking about an animal. So I didn't even want to go there. But uh, basically, the Old Testament clearly teaches the existence of demons as well. Their nature is they are spirits. They are unclean, they are ruled by Satan, they are very intelligent. Um, you know, in fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the root uh, for, for the word demon in Greek is the same root for intelligence. 
if I'm not mistaken. I, I read that from some New Testament scholar. Um, their activity is they oppose God and his purposes and his people. In particular, they promote false teaching. The Bible talks about the doctrine of demons. It, it, it seems that they actually, some of the false teachings that have been out there have actually been, the, the demons kind of come up with that. Uh, and they also promote false teaching amongst, you know, people on the earth. False doctrine. They oppose our spiritual growth. They can possess humans and animals. And they inflict disease and torment. Now, all disease does not come from, from demons. It does not come from possession. All torment does not come from demons or possession. Okay? It, it, that, that is a false teaching. But they do do that. They can do that. Here's what's important. Satan and the demons can be opposed. The Bible says about Satan, resist him and he will flee from you. Christ has defeated Satan on the cross. Even though he is still free, he's still roaming, it's kind of like the war was fought at the cross before the battles took place. You get the idea? And when Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead, he defeated Satan and his demons. Remember several times when Jesus cast out demons, they even said to him, what, you know, in fact, the ones he cast into the pigs, he threw them into the pigs. He said, well, what, you, you've come for us before our time. Like they knew they were defeated. They knew a time was coming that they were going to be cast into hell, you know, eternally. And they're like, wait, it's not time yet, Lord. You, you know, so, and, and that's why this, the, the, you know, when that verse we read there toward the beginning, when the you know, apostles come back to him and they're like, man, we, even the demons listen to us when we use your name. Yes, of course they do. Because he is over them all. He is God. And, and, and so you do not have to be in fear of Satan and the demons. You do have to be respectful. Because you don't have the power on your own to fight them or, you know, cast them out. Or any that, you know, don't, don't speak flippantly about those things. My personal opinion on this, like, Hey, look, I'll watch a movie that has a monster in it, like vampires and werewolves, because there, there are no such things like that, and that doesn't bother me or scare me or whatever. I don't fool with demons. I don't. I don't live in fear of them, but I don't mess with them either. And I, you know, personally, I think that's pretty sound advice. Yeah, just believe what the Bible says about them. Resist them when temptation comes. They are already defeated. Their ultimate judgment, some are already locked away because of sins that they've committed. Second Peter 2, 4, Jude 6 and 7 speak of demons being locked up in chains under darkness until the day of judgment because of sins they've committed and and. Many scholars believe that that is speaking of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. That the particular spiritual beings that perpetrated that great sin on humanity have been locked away because basically God said, you guys are too bad, you can't be out there free doing anything anymore. Others will be thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan in the final judgment. And you can read that in Matthew 25, verse 41, where part of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where he says, the lake of fire is for Satan and his demons. Okay? So that is what the Bible says about Satan and his demons. It's part of it. <laughs> I don't want to portray for you that that is everything. We could, we could spend weeks talking about the subject, but uh, that should be enough to be sufficient for us. Uh, any, well, now I'm not even going to ask any questions. I don't have time to answer them. It's four minutes after 10. Uh, let's close in prayer and, and, uh, and we'll get ready for the, for the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the ability that you've given us to, to reach into your word and try to understand it. And it is difficult for us, Lord. 
Uh, There are so many things there that are foreign to us, so many things that are beyond our understanding. Lord, I I have great respect for all the different opinions that that people have on many of these things because I understand how hard this is. But ultimately, I believe that your word teaches the existence of Satan and of the demons. And Jesus taught that, and it seems very clear. And, And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us not to mess with anything like this, not to, uh, not to become enamored and too interested in demons and, 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 and Satan. But at the same time, I pray that we would not live in fear, but we would live uh, with, with the, the security and the knowledge of, of who you are and of what you have done in Jesus Christ. And if we truly are believers, if he is has changed us and made us alive in Christ, and if your spirit indwells us, then, then we have nothing to fear. Lord, if there are any who are hearing my voice who do not know Christ as their, as their Savior, even now, even in a, in, a, in a class like this, something may have touched their heart, and I pray that they would come this day to know Christ as their Savior, that they would have that same security that the rest of us can have. Lord, I thank you for this all. We love you, and we just uh, bless you for all that you've done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.